0: In episode 10 of AvTalk, we talk to Andrew Poor about what it's like to move cargo around the world.
1: Off the top of my head, the one that comes to mind is 225,000 pounds of ketchup packets. We cover recent incidents in the news to see how construction and cows affected
0: aviation in the past few weeks. And we have a quick preview of this year's air venture in Oshkosh. Welcome to AvTalk episode 10. Double digit. We're here. I'm Ian Pechnik, and I'm here with, of course- Jason
2: it's Yes. Oh, I, 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 I missed my cue.
0: Yeah, it's okay. 10 we'll, episodes in, we'll, we can't we'll get the We'll get it, it on episode right. 20. It's our 10th episode, and we've done nine of these so far. How do you feel? I feel pretty great, Ian. All great right. To great. Then let's make episode 10 a good one. We're off to a rocky start, so it can only go up from here. There you go. So, I don't know. What do you want to talk about? Let's see. How about- Construction fumes. Those are bad. Those are bad. They're even worse when they're in an air traffic control facility that evacuates half the East Coast.
2: Yeah, it's not good when that happens. And I can imagine there's a contractor working on an FAA facility somewhere in the greater DC area that's not too happy right now. So, to back up, as we often have to do, a
0: contractor performing some sort of construction work. Roofing, apparently. Roofing, okay. Yeah, the roofing stuff can smell pretty bad. Now now it starts to make more sense. So construction workers working on the Air Route Traffic Control Center, which is responsible for high-altitude airspace in the area around Washington, D.C., they're doing some roofing, and the fumes get into the building, and they decide that it's in the best interest of everyone in the building to evacuate the building.
2: And on the airplanes. The last thing we need is a bunch of I guess incapacitated air traffic controllers on roofing fumes? Yeah. Um, I mean guiding aircraft.
0: Yeah, probably not the best and or safest way to do things. No, this was in everyone's best interest. So the, the facility gets evacuated, and what that does is it clears a very large hole in the East Coast airspace. And delayed, you know, dozens of flights to to start out with, and, and had some effects basically throughout the rest of the happened close to dinner time, and and lasted
2: into the morning. So these things happen every now and then. Sometimes a facility might go down because of a power outage. Maybe uh, an ex disgruntled employee sets fire to an entire basement and treads a bunch of cables. Chicago maybe there's some fumes. But when they evacuate these facilities, they basically hand off flight operations to neighboring facilities for flights that are in the area and more or less stop accepting any other aircraft from entering that airspace. And that has a ripple effect that could move through the entire country or even further.
0: Yeah, I mean, it it really affects, you know,
2: thousands of, of flights, you know, depending on how
0: long it can last. Certainly hundreds of flights were affected that day. And it, it's interesting to see how they, they mitigate things with staying below the altitude that an aircraft would normally be handed off to the, the center controllers so that TRACON controllers and tower controllers can deal with those flights and, and try and keep things moving. It, it's It's a... Interesting process to see how they right. so get around a roofing th- fumes.
2: As a last ditch effort, instead of flying, let's say, between DC and LaGuardia at thirty two thousand feet, they might actually eventually get clearance to take off and then go all the way from D C to New York, only at about eleven thousand feet the entire way, which is maybe a bit of a bumpy ride, but at least you're getting from A to B.
0: Yeah, and, and that was that was one of the things that, that they did and then just flying around in route flights that were already airborne, just flying around the airspace.
2: Yeah, there were some flights that were going transcom from like LA to New York that got into that airspace and had to double all the way back and north to go around this giant hole in the sky, basically, to get where they were going. So long story short,
0: be careful when doing roofing work, I guess.
2: That's good advice, Ian. The next time I'm up on the roof of a, a Traycon facility, I will make sure the fumes do not get sucked into the air conditioning system. You didn't know that this was an aviation podcast and also a DIY or, or construction podcast too. That's right. Shut down the HVAC system when you're doing stinky work. Yeah. So <laughs> <laughs> I was going to transition us to
0: other stinky work, but I, I want to save that for next. And let's talk about something a, a little bit more serious for, for a moment. Last we're about a week and a half ago now, an Air Canada flight into San Francisco was lined up with the taxiway instead of the runway, and went around in time before landing on the taxiway. But it, it looks like it, it could have been a rather,
2: a rather Let's scary situation. Call it what it is. They weren't going to land on the taxiway. They were going to land on other aircraft that were on the taxiway. As much as we know right now, that's a very fair assessment of of the, the situation. So, unfortunately, Air Canada does not really have much ADSB installed on their narrowbody fleet, and this A320 is no exception. So, tracking it is a bit difficult. There's conflicting information about just how low it was, just how close they were to the other aircraft. But by any account, it took them a really, 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 really long time to figure out that they were not where they were supposed to be.
0: Yeah, and this is something that we're definitely going to keep an eye on, and, and as we as we come into more data from various sources and especially the the final report issued by the NTSB we'll know more about what exactly happened but it's something that landing on taxiways or it's not it's not common but it has happened before it
2: happens it's also come close to happening somewhat recently. I know this is the example everyone knows of, but Harrison Ford, I think this was in- No, where, he where did was? in fact land on the taxiway. He, he did. He fl- went right over the top of an American 737. Yep. Really didn't have any idea what he was doing at the time, but it happens. It's happened before in, in Seattle because
0: of the, the parallel, parallel right. runways and taxiways. And I forget, there's a third
2: example- in recent memory, where, where it almost happened. Kind of amazing that with all the technology we have, my car can know if I'm on <laughs> the center lane or the right lane or the left lane, but an airplane doesn't know if it's lined up with the taxiway or a runway. We're going to get angry, angry email about that. I guarantee it. Bring so it on. It's, it's Ian
0: podcast. Gets about me. It's podcast at fr24.com. Feel free to. I will read the email first, but I guarantee that Jason will see it. So I, I know we'll get some angry email about that, but we say all that to say that we're very glad that that nothing, nothing very very bad happened, and and the aircraft landed very safely a little while later after going around. So Eventually, I, we'll keep tabs on this one for sure as as more data becomes available. But back to stinky work. Cows. The, the front half of this podcast is all well stink. This one I bet is really stinky. Well, it's it's 165 cows of stink, so that's. <laughs> That's That's a lot of
2: stink. Where were they going?
0: Well, they were going to Doha because as we've discussed in the past, Qatari registered flights aren't allowed to fly through certain countries. And the land borders with those countries, in Qatar's case, they're not allowed to transition goods. So there was a milk shortage in Qatar. And Qatar's solution was to fly in the first batch of 165 cows aboard a freighter aircraft from Budapest to Doha. And then they're going to fly in up to 4,000 total cows.
2: Where are they going to put 4,000 cows in Doha? I figure just a cow for every person. Maybe and they just they, line the streets with cows. Maybe they'll graze at the old airport. I don't think anyone's using it.
0: Well, it, as, as I was informed on Twitter...
2: Yeah, yeah, cows don't graze. I know. Milk cows do not graze. So yeah, yeah,
0: It's an aviation podcast. It's a DIY podcast. It's an agriculture podcast. We're here for you, listeners.
2: But <laughs> <laughs> I,
0: don't, I don't know.
2: So they're going to fly in 4,000 cows total. What do they find them in? On Qatar, I know has A three hundred and thirty freighters. They have triple seven freighters. I think they lease seven four seven freighters. What were they? The, Hold
0: on. The first one came in on. I want to say it was A three hundred and thirty freighters, but it could have been triple seven freighters, and I, I don't have the I don't have the flight pulled up. But we will put it in the show notes. Make a note of it. I'm making it right now. So we wanted to talk to somebody. This wasn't the direct line, but. It comes close. We wanted to talk to somebody who has experience transporting 165 cows, or at least could tell us about what that's like. Something close to it. Something close to it. So we spoke with Andrew Poor, who is an international cargo operations expert. And so we're going to take a quick break, and we're going to be back with Andrew and talk about what it would take to get 165 cows, or a load of horses, or... A tank. Maybe a tank across the world. So stick with us. We'll be right back with Andrew. Welcome back to AvTalk. We are here with Andrew Poor, who is a supervisor in the flight operations department for a major US-based cargo carrier. And we're going to talk about all things cargo. Andrew, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Welcome to the show, buddy. So, Andrew, you're... Your job is the supervisor in the flight operations, and I would love to hear what exactly that is and,
1: and what you do. What, uh, what does that day-to-day. mean?
2: Nobody knows what you do.
1: <laughs> sure. Yeah, the department specifically that I work in is referred to as international flight clearance. So I'm I'm one of the supervisors there, and what we're responsible for essentially is gathering all of the governmental approvals for all our cargo flights, um, whether that's an overflight permit, a landing permit, actual traffic rights for whatever country or countries we're going to and from, as well as some customs considerations, all those sorts of things fall under our uh, responsibility in my department. So there's an absolute ton of work that goes on behind the scenes
2: at any airline. And mainly our focus, admittedly, is passenger airlines, but you work for a cargo airline. What goes on in the background at a cargo airline that doesn't happen at a passenger airline?
1: Well, the airline I work for, we do a whole lot of ad hoc charters. So somebody will call us and say, you know, tomorrow we need to go from here to here or next week we need to go from here to here. So we're doing a lot of last minute planning, a lot of short notice types of things like that and the overflight permits, the landing permits, traffic rights. Is all a little bit different because of that, because for a passenger airline, they're planning these things months and months in advance, and it's all done seasonally, yearly even. So it's quite a bit different in that sense. So yeah, you're absolutely right
2: that a passenger airline will publish their schedule almost a full year in advance. They have obviously adequate time, ample time to get the permits, overflight, everything that they need to get from A to B. How do you do it if a client calls your airline and says, I want to fly from Kentucky to Kazakhstan, and I want to do
1: it right the hell now? What do you do? What's the first thing you do? First thing we do is we check what traffic rights in Kazakhstan are going to take in terms of a lead time. Off the top of my head, that would probably be three to five days So we would tell our customer, well, our sales team would, we would tell our sales team who would then tell the customer that we'd have a maybe five day lead time on that. Again, off the top of my head, going from Midwest US over to Kazakhstan, overflights aren't going to be much of a problem. We could probably get all our overflights in say 24 hours for that flight. Europe, we don't need anything for a civilian flight of that sort. So I would say, yeah, tell our sales team, got a few days lead time to get all those permits. And then we'd create a, a sheet, basically, that goes in our system, our uh, flight operations software, that lists all of that, whether it's overflights, traffic rights, customs, slots. I didn't mention that. We also handle all of our airport slots for our airline in our department. So we attach that, we fill it out, and we get going immediately. So if you're flying from A to B, do you
2: just instinctively have to know where this flight is going to fly over? Or do you have some sort of software that tells you this flight's probably going to operate over these countries, you need to get in contact with them?
1: A little bit of both. When we first get trained in our department, we do a whole lot of geography practice. We'll end up after our five days of kind of training class, our trainer will put up a blank world map on the the wall and have us fill it all out. But we do use the same flight planning software that our dispatchers use. So we'll run a test flight plan whenever we get one of these ad hoc charters or a new added flight. And we'll see exactly where we're overflying, where we need to adjust routings to not overfly somewhere. Cause, you know, there are certain places we will not overfly or cannot overfly depending on various circumstances. So, so what's the actual,
0: I mean, is it a physical stack of paperwork or is it just kind of an electronic file where? you're dealing with you've got all of these permits and things like that so to so use to stick with jason's kentucky to kazakhstan example how many different pieces of paperwork are involved
1: in in that 5 day lead time it kind of varies depending on what the cargo may be what route we'll take but we do generally have an actual stack of paperwork that we're using for these flights we have a folder that will compile everything in so For that example, we definitely have an approval and or an application to start out with for Kazakhstan that we would have in there. So that a few pages probably there right off the bat, just for traffic rights. I don't know if there's a slot controlled airport anywhere in Kazakhstan, probably not. But say there were, we would have that printed out, stick it in our file. Like I said, we wouldn't need any overflight permits for that route, except maybe couple of the countries right there in close to Kazakhstan, maybe a Russia, maybe a Belarus going up north that way. But it'd be a pretty thin folder for that example, to be
2: perfectly honest. So what exactly is an overflight permit? What is it? How do you get it? What does it mean?
1: It's permission to enter the airspace and overfly, you know, landmass of a country. We don't have to get it for every country. Like I said, Europe for a U.S. airline is not going to be a problem on any sort of civilian cargo flight. Then again, if it's military, that's a whole different story. And we do a, a lot of military flying, 30, 40 missions a month at our airline. But for civilian flying, it's a pretty simple process for the most part. A lot of the countries will ask for a specific route or an entry and exit waypoint into their airspace, and they'll only accept certain ones. So we have to look at that for every application we send out for an overflight we have to make sure we're following the rules in that regard. Some countries will request more paperwork depending on whether we've been there recently or not, so we'll send you know insurance certificates or airworthiness and uh, registration certificates, noise certificates for our airplanes all those those sorts of
2: things so you touched upon something briefly that I want to dive into a little more military flight, so I'm assuming every major cargo operation occasionally runs operations and and flights for the military, be it the u s or if they're in another country, another military. How different is that operation for you when you're operating a military
1: operation? It's extremely different, particularly for our department. You know, the getting from A to B, putting the cargo on board and all of that is pretty similar to what we're doing in the civilian side. But as far as clearances go, when we're operating under a military call sign, the U.S. Air Force, they have a call sign that they use for all their contractor flights that we'll use going into any sort of military base. And when we're under that call sign, we're essentially a U.S. military aircraft. So all of our overflight landings, all of those clearances have to actually go through the U.S. Embassy in every country we overfly or land at. So we have a Pentagon website we actually use for that that will go in, we'll lay out our entire flight, our route, our timings and all of that and submit that. And then every defense attache office in each embassy of each country will get that request and then forward that on to the host country. So it's a much more involved process. There's a lot more to it, I suppose. And there's a lot more rules, a lot longer lead times, generally speaking, and some very strict sort of restrictions. And you have to describe your cargo and that sort of thing pretty strictly. So it's quite a bit different. You mentioned there's a specific call sign for military cargo flights. What is it? camber that's charlie mike bravo on the three letter code so if you ever type that into a flight radar you'll usually see one or two maybe three or four at a time all over the world could be fedex ups somebody like that flying them but then there's also ad hoc operators like my employer and a couple others that fly day in and day out or flying camber flights all the time
2: i wonder what that means where'd they come up with that
0: (laughs) i'm sure someone will tell us and if you know Podcast at fr24.com. We'll include it in the next episode. I want to come back to Jason's example sticking with the same Kentucky to Kazakhstan. I don't know why he picked it, but we'll go with it because it lends itself. Know. It lends itself to the next kind of example that I'll use and let's talk about live cargo. Let's say that we're sending, you know, a cargo of Kentucky racehorses to Kazakhstan because somebody in Kazakhstan wants to breed racehorses or something like that. Obviously. How how would that flight be different? I mean, obviously there's some considerations when you have live animals on board, but from, from an operator perspective and a planning perspective, how is that flight different than flying, you know, uh, 10 tons of potatoes or something?
1: Right. A few key differences would probably involve scheduling. We would plan a lot more ground time, both on the outbound from Kentucky and on the ground in Kazakhstan, because it's going to take a lot longer to load, offload that kind of cargo. So that'd be one consideration, definitely. Fuel would be another consideration because you're going to want to have more gas on the airplane to be able to control the climate a little bit better. If you want to run the packs, the AC packs, the whole flight or on the ground for the entire turnaround time. So things like that come into play as well as jump seat availability, because when we're carrying live animals, we almost always have handlers that are going along with these animals. So we would generally, we have two types of 747-400s at my airline. We have the true freighters and we have Boeing converted freighters. The Boeing converted freighters have a lot more extra space up on the upper deck. So we would probably aim to use one of those. So we have room to carry all the horse handlers. So with
0: cargo, there's, I mean, I, when you when you take a passenger flight, that's an international flight, you get off the plane, you Go collect your baggage, or or visit the restroom, and then you walk up to a little booth and you present your passport and you say, "I'm here," and they say, "Come on in." And or they don't, that's, or they don't. In Jason's case, usually. <laughs> how is that the same? I mean, obviously the the horses don't walk up to the booth themselves, but how is that the same when you, when you're transporting cargo internationally? Is is it? Is there a lot of difference there, getting goods into the country versus dealing with just people alone or or is
1: it a pretty similar straightforward process? It's pretty straightforward for the most part. There's computer systems that customs uses for cargo in particular, so we you know we broadcast all of our necessary messages to them with all our cargo manifests and that sort of thing. And generally they'll come out to the airplane, they'll clear the cargo when we arrive. Uh, you well, this is I'm using the u s off the top of my head, not other countries, but it's pretty much the same, yeah, on cargo flights they'll generally they'll come to the aircraft that or there's a warehouse right there at the ramp that customs will base themselves in, and they'll process all the cargo coming through there, but they'll also tend to come to the aircraft to clear the crew they'll check passports that way, depending on the airport there's a few airports you know that I can think of that they'll actually transfer our crew over to the terminal to clear customs, but that's, that's more rare. So uh, on the whole, I would say it is a fairly straightforward process as it is with passengers, just, you know, a little bit different logistically. Hmm.
2: So again, comparing cargo to passenger, for a passenger airline, flying an empty airplane is like the worst thing ever. You're not making any money, everybody loses. How often or at all does a cargo operation maybe fly an aircraft completely empty? if you're bringing something, again, from Kentucky to Kazakhstan, you may not have something to bring back from Kazakhstan. So is that, does that happen a lot? Or is it acceptable? Or what happens?
1: It does happen a lot, especially since so much of our flying is ad hoc or on a contract basis. You know, we'll try to find revenue wherever we can. So a lot of of the time, what we'll do is if we fly to somewhere like that part of the world, we'll be flying transatlantic, obviously, and then over into the western asia area. So if we were going to Kazakhstan for example, we would probably fly in there with say the horses, drop them off and we would likely then in our operation as an example, I would say we'd go to Amsterdam because we have a regular contract to carry cargo out of Amsterdam to JFK. So we kind of operate those whenever we get the chance. It's you know kind of a mixed bag. Whenever we have the opportunity, we'll fly into Amsterdam and then carry cargo back to the states through JFK. So We do fly empty a lot, but we do try to find revenue any place we can. But again, since we're flying ad hoc contract basis, we will build in those ferry flights to contracts whenever we can. Because if somebody wants to ship a 747 load of whatever they need shipped, a lot of the times you throw another $75,000 for a ferry flight on there, they're going to pay it just because they don't really have another choice. So whenever possible, our sales team will try to sort of build ferry pricing into whatever contract we're about to fly. So when
2: customers book out one of your 747s, is it typically a big thing that can't fit on a smaller aircraft or a lot of small things that just needs to be moved all
1: in one shot? It's probably pretty 50-50 on the whole. We fly a lot of just general cargo as ad hoc flights, just palletized or containerized, whatever it may be. Just for freight forwarders, companies like Panalpina, UPS, Supply Chain Solutions, those types of companies that are international freight forwarders that they could have their own customers shipping whatever. It could be iPhones out of China. It could be, well, right now we're flying a lot of cherries from West Coast, North America over to China. So it really, you know, could be anything. But we do a lot of the outside stuff as well, especially since we have, how many do we have now? By the end of the year, we'll have nine 747 True Freighters with nose doors. And those definitely come in handy for the sort of unusual large cargo, whether that's like a true shipping container, like a steel, you know, sea cargo container. We do those more frequently than you might think. Drilling equipment for natural gas, all those sorts of things that are really only going to fit on a 747. So
2: only the true freighters have the nose door the, where the whole nose kind of lifts up, while the converted freighters, I guess, have had a cargo door put into the side of the aircraft? Yep, correct. How do you prioritize what goes where or do specific customers request that? Or do you just know the size of the cargo requires
1: a specific aircraft type? The types of, you know, oversized cargo that we fly on the nose door aircraft, it's always so specialized that the sales team knows from the get go that it's going to be a nose door kind of movement. So we'll look out well in advance and try to hold a true freighter reserved for that type of flight. So I want to come back to the, the containerized cargo,
0: because you said more often than you might think, and I had honestly never thought about that before. I've seen certain things containerized and, and flown, things like like spacecraft, where they, they wrap them up, basically hermetically seal them and, mm-hmm. and containerize them. But what other things, I mean, if you can share any of that, what other things go in
1: containers that then get loaded onto a seven forty seven? various things. A lot of it that I can think of off the top of my head is military and government type of cargo that I'm not going to go into too much detail about, but nothing super crazy, but it could be just general supplies for military troops, things like uniforms and that sort of thing, because the military uses those for so much of their logistics that it's just easier to throw them on a 747 whenever possible. So,
2: yeah. What's the strangest cargo you've ever had to prepare for a flight?
1: Off the top of my head, the one that comes to mind is 225,000 pounds of ketchup packets. Ketchup packets? (laughs) Where were the ketchup packets going to that they had to be
2: ad hoc shipped with a 747?
1: So they were shipped from the West Coast to three different Wendy's distribution centers on the eastern part of the country. No way. Yeah. So there was a recall at some point a couple of years back. And so all of their ketchup packets on the East Coast and Midwest got recalled. So we flew a 747 load of new ketchup packets from a different supplier on the West Coast to their distribution centers. This kind of explains so much. About a
2: year ago, <laughs> we started seeing ketchup packets from In-N-Out Burger in New York City. And there are no in and out Burgers on the East Coast or like even east of the Mississippi. So maybe one of those ketchup packets came off your 747. Could have been. Yeah. Wow. I never would have thought. What does what 225,000
0: pounds of ketchup packets look like as far as in, I mean, is that just boxes
1: on a pallet or? Yeah, it was palletized and probably, I, you know, I don't know off the top of my head, but I assume it more or less filled the aircraft, probably upper deck and lower deck, just full of pallets of ketchup packets. I have no segue from that.
2: <laughs> DNA, you, you come up with something. I can't beat that. Well. I mean, I, I, I'm just thinking
0: like I, as a pilot, how, how do you consider, does it come in to play what you're flying? I mean, you know, do, do you care or is it just, do you care enough to know how you have to fly the aircraft? So, I mean, obviously you're going to handle the aircraft a little bit differently, not a lot differently, but a little bit differently if you're flying horses versus ketchup packets, but, but how much, how much comes into play there?
1: I think you kind of hit the nail on the head there. I mean, if it's live animals, it's going to be a little bit different. You're going to handle the airplane with a little bit more finesse. Maybe you're not going to be taking last minute vectors and making 45 degree banks and that sort of thing. But anything else general cargo wise, you know, as long as it's strapped down, right, which it always is, especially since, you know, some of the high profile incidents that have occurred in the past several years. We take lots and lots of time to make sure whatever it is, it's strapped down, it's secure in every possible way. But because we do that, we take so much time to that. If it's not live animals, it's probably not going to have much of an impact on how the flight crew is operating the aircraft.
2: Right. I think I just have one more question. And it's basically, what's the hardest destination for you to get all your permits, all your paperwork, all your requirements set in stone for?
1: Oh, that is a tough question because everywhere has its challenges. I would definitely have to say that the military flying is harder than civilian flying, but just for the sake of kind of staying on topic and staying a little more away from the military side, because I don't, I don't want to talk too much about it. On the civilian side, Africa is always a challenge, especially some of the kind of less developed nations there. We have to go through a third-party vendor to get most of those overflights. Uh, we don't do it directly ourselves. And then traffic rights can be a challenge because it can be even a challenge just to get in communication with the right agencies we need to get in communication with.
2: So Right. That's a great point. I'd imagined if you're flying to somewhere like the Sudan or somewhere interior Africa, they might not even have the infrastructure in place for you to go to a website and apply for the permit. So does this third-party agency literally have a person on the ground in these countries that goes to acquire the permit for you?
1: They very well may. If they don't, they have a particular contact in whatever agency or you know, near to, close to whatever agency they need to talk to. They have their kind of network that we don't, so they're able to kind of do that a little more efficiently than we are. So, last question, and then we'll let you
0: get back to planning ketchup, horse trip ketchup from ketchup Kentucky to Kazakhstan. We asked people on, on Twitter and Facebook to to send us questions if they had anything that they wanted to know about cargo. And one person asked how much it would cost to ship themselves somewhere. <laughs> and so can you give us a ballpark figure on how much it would cost to ship one person on a pallet from Kentucky to Kazakhstan?
2: Before you answer, we do not endorse, recommend, or would ever otherwise try to fly a human being in a cargo flight, but just
1: hypothetically. yeah. <laughs> The thing is, with an ad hoc flight like that, if you wanted to just go A to B at your choosing, you're going to need to rent the whole airplane. So unless you have a quarter of a million pounds of other stuff to put on the airplane, I would highly recommend you don't do such a thing. Jason, we need to get some ketchup packets. Can we opt for mustard maybe? Change it up a bit? Oh, okay. I'd even go mayo. Oh. I mean, just to be way out there. (laughs) A full charter for a 747 if you wanted to just ship yourself on the whole big empty airplane. It's still going to cost you a quarter of a million dollars to fly from the U.S. to Kazakhstan, so I wouldn't recommend it. I am going to keep flying commercially then.
0: There you go. All right, so no pallet travel, and I think we answered or we asked all the questions we had. We've been chatting with Andrew Poor, who is a supervisor in in flight operations at a major U.S.-based cargo carrier and he has been filling us in on, on a world not many of us get to see very often. Andrew, I want to thank you so much for joining us. It was great talking to you. And where can we find you? Where can I follow
1: you? I'm on Twitter at A-P-O-U-R-E-2-5. I welcome new followers. I post some occasionally post some interesting things about what I do, what's going on in the cargo world, so feel free. That sounds great. Yeah, give give Andrew a follow.
0: Some of the stuff he posts is... Is very interesting if you're into cargo and into how flight operations work. So, some very cool stuff. Andrew, thanks again for joining
1: us. Thanks for having me. I thanks, it. Andrew.
0: So, now we know how to transport 250,000 pounds of ketchup if we ever need to.
2: Ketchup, tanks, cows, horses.
0: Really? I mean- Not people. Not people. Not people. So, we again, we strenuously advise against- shipping yourself in a a cargo aircraft. It's a a legal thing that we have to mention. So today, we're recording the 18th of July. And today was a very special day for one person who works for American Airlines.
2: So yesterday, the city of New York has a Twitter account and I guess a greater messaging platform where they send out emergency alerts to the city for pending events, or hey, there's a fireworks display, because sometimes people in New York get a little panicky, and when aircraft do overflights over the city, we usually get an alert saying, hey, helicopter, this registration number, this paint job is going to be over the over Manhattan in the Bronx at like 200 feet for a little bit, be aware of it. Yesterday, I got one that said a Boeing 777, known to us as a Boeing 777, would be doing a flyover of Manhattan and the Hudson River at 3,000 feet. And when I got that message, it was like, huh? That doesn't happen. And so everyone took to Twitter asking
0: everyone else, do you know anything about this? And I got that message and said, no, go on. Tell me more. And so as it turns out, Al Blackman, Ezreal Al Blackman has been – with American Airlines since it was before American Airlines. American Export Airlines. He has been a maintenance technician with the airline for 75 years. Think about that for a second. That's three quarters of a century. He started
2: as an apprentice in the sheet metal shop, making 50 cents an hour. Graduating out of aviation high school in New York City, which in fact, is still a thing.
0: And so, American to honor his 70 – I can't get over.
2: He's been a mechanic for 75 years. It was a big enough event that pretty much every bigwig from American came out for this. CEO Doug Parker was out. The Guinness Book of World Records came out. Let me look at the list. Andy Glass from the Guinness Book of World Records. Bob Crandall, former CEO, was there. This was a huge event This was a America. big deal.
0: And so to kind of recognize him and his seventy five, I keep coming back to seventy five years. They took a triple seven two hundred ER, and in front of the L one door, so the between the the flight deck windows and the first door, they painted a nice little in you know in honor of and. They took his signature, blew it up, and, and put it on the on the aircraft. So now when you're when you're flying the aircraft and you're boarding, you'll be able to see his name and the airplane thanking him for his, his
2: years of service. And they put a nice little plaque on the inside of the aircraft too, dedicating it to him. And if you're looking for that aircraft, if you're a plane spotter or a frequent American passenger, it's a 777-200ER-N751AN. And we'll toss a link in the show notes so that you can track where it's going, where it's been. And the
0: the nice flight that they did over up the Hudson and, and over Long Island and, and back into JFK.
2: Yeah, it was a pretty long flight. I think it was almost 90 minutes, but they took off from 13 right in JFK, went out over the Atlantic, straight up over New York Bay, up the Hudson River. All the way like up to Poughkeepsie, and then turn back down all the way out to the eastern end of Long Island, and then finally back um, to the approach for thirteen left. So pretty fun looking flight. Yeah. So so we'll we'll post that up, and and hopefully what what I don't know is if
0: this was a just a celebration of his work or if he's retiring. I don't. Which think would she's be retiring. I mean, good for him.
2: I think the the man has been at his job for 75 years and why stop now? Yeah, exactly. Apparently there's all sorts of fun restrictions on his work. He's not allowed to drive on the airfield. He's not allowed to do a a, a bunch of stuff, but as he's aged out of it, I think he's 91 yeah. now, but he still goes to work every day and apparently everyone that's ever worked with him absolutely loves him.
0: Well, I'm su- I'm sure his knowledge of
2: of airplanes is just enormous. Yeah, there was a New York Times article on him today about the event and they they were saying that he's the guy that sits down at the lunch table with the interns and drops knowledge on them. I could
0: only I mean I would say we would have we should have him on the podcast, but <laughs>
2: I mean
0: <laughs> yeah, I wish. So other things that have been around for a very long time and got a little recognition today or not today, but this week, is the L-1011. The TriStar Experience, which is a Kansas City-based organization, spent over a year restoring a, an L-1011 in the Arizona desert to bring it to Kansas City so that they can use it for STEM research, science, technology, education, or not education, engineering and math. So it's going to be used in Kansas City, but they had to get it from Arizona to Kansas City and fly it one more time. So they got it airworthy, or almost airworthy, and took off and quickly went back to Tucson. A day later, they tried again and made it to Kansas City And in the aircraft's final flight. And, and the interesting thing about this aircraft, this particular aircraft, is that it served as the flying hospital for a number of years. So it would fly places and doctors on board would perform surgeries and, and things like that for,
2: for people who, who needed those, needed those services. Yeah, these special aircraft are, are pretty amazing. There's also the Orbis Flying Eye, which I think is what is it, an MD eleven these days? It is an MD ten. MD ten, that's right. The the FedEx special version of a DC ten. Yeah, the old one was a DC ten.
0: They they upgraded rather recently in the in the last year or so to yeah. the, the MD ten.
2: Good for them. It's not often you see an L ten eleven live trackable on the site. So we we
0: asked and apparently there is now one airworthy L ten eleven. Is it the Sans Corp one? No, it is the
2: orbital no, it's ATK. Than that. Yeah,
0: yeah, it is the orbital ATK L ten eleven, which is not only a flying L ten eleven;
2: it's also a rocket launching L ten eleven. I mean, if you got an L ten eleven, you might as well shoot rockets out the belly. I mean, I can't argue with that.
0: <laughs> Sound <laughs> logically, and just move I, on and I, accept it. I, I can't argue with that at all. Okay, yeah, fine, we'll move
2: on. But it, it was just pretty cool to see an L ten eleven flying again, if only for you know a few hours. Yeah. A lot of people were kind of freaking out about the L-1011. It's their favorite aircraft. They miss it. I have no emotional attachment to an L-1011. It was a failure of an aircraft. I know we're going to get hate mail now, but- Podcast
0: at fr24.com or Twitter at FlightRadar24. Facebook is FlightRadar24. Feel free to let Jason know how you feel about the L-1011. Yes, tell me why you love it because I I have no opinion on the matter. <laughs> we can put some of those in the next episode if people do have strong feelings about it. I would be interested to know a little bit more about that. If the L ten eleven is is because it seemed like it was a lot of people's favorite aircraft.
2: I have no idea why
0: though. So so I would love to hear why. So so let us know. Speaking of favorite aircraft and just aviation goodness, Oshkosh. Air Venture starts next week. And Jason, have you been to Oshkosh? No. I feel like you only asked that because you know I haven't been. And it is my goal in life to drag you there at least once. So, Oshkosh, for anyone that doesn't know, and for those that need a quick recap, is a massive gathering of aviation, the world's largest gathering of aviation that happens for a week each year in Oshkosh, Wisconsin north of Chicago. And I think at last count, it was 10,000 airplanes fly in. And it's something like 550 to 600,000 people visit throughout the week. But it's amazing, you know, aircraft from home built to bombers to commercial aircraft that fly in tons of old warbirds and things like that. Just a lot of great Great stuff. this This year, the the Blue Angels are headlining it. The U.S. Navy's show planes B B1, one, B B2, two, B seventeen, B twenty five, B twenty nines, both airworthy B twenty nines, B fifty two, and an A twenty are going to be there. Along with this year, a new interesting thing: Blue Origin will be there with their new Shepard reusable rocket.
2: Wait, so they're bringing pretty- an actual rocket to Oshkosh? They are bringing the actual rocket to Oshkosh. An actual rocket. Can you use it? Can you go somewhere with it? Will, I, they, will they launch it? I doubt it will be
0: launched at Oshkosh, but I'm sure you'll be able to to look at it.
2: Hmm. So th- these Blue Origin rockets, they're quite a bit smaller than the ones SpaceX launches, I think, right? They're quite a bit smaller. I think, aren't they?
0: I don't have the the size facts, but I want to say yes. Okay. I believe that they are smaller than the SpaceX rockets, but they're still pretty cool reusable rockets. So I, I wouldn't mind seeing one. So if you ever have the the opportunity, yesterday I was out plane spotting and spoke with someone from Germany who was also out plane spotting near O'Hare, and he is flying back to Germany. Flew back to Germany yesterday. Is flying back for Oshkosh. So I mean, people come in from from all over the world. I know one person who makes the trip every year from New Zealand. It's a pretty great time if if aviation's your thing.
2: So if you haven't been, you should go at least once. I'll get there one day. One day. I'm actually looking at a size comparison, and it, it's not smaller. The Falcon Nine and Falcon Heavy are about the same size, and I guess they're probably just bringing the the actual blue origin part and not the first stage rocket because that, those are huge maybe they're bringing the capsule or they are well, they're,
0: they're bringing the rocket the blue origin the rocket and they're bringing the capsule as well they'll have a mock okay. up of the capsule
2: that makes uh, much more that sense. you can tour so that'll be neat oh man if they had the actual first stage rocket part that would be amazing well then maybe next year oh it's always hope
0: should we do some quick wrap-up Yes. So, speaking of wrap-up, did you like that one? I we did that. Uh, (laughs) Funny guy. The first UPS 747-8 freighter rolled out of the paint shop wrapped in paper. brown paper bag. It looked like a brown paper bag with a bunch of masking tape on it.
2: All I want to do is just go up to that thing and just rip all of the paper off.
0: And you may get your chance... There's supposed to be a media event at some point to unveil what could be a new livery for, oh. for UPS, a special livery for the 747-8, was the speculation. I don't know, but that's what I'm hoping for. So, So hopefully we'll see that one soon. And what we talked about in Episode 9 has come about. Norwegian this week began their 737 MAX transatlantic service. Wow. I know that you're super excited about
2: that, but... They did take delivery of, I think, two more today. 2 They're in the air right now as we record. Where are they going? Home. Wh- where's home? Norwegian has like eight homes. <laughs> I think they're going to Oslo. Okay. I think that's where they start and then they go out from there. Yeah, so they will tag in where the 737-800 NGs are currently flying transatlantic, which were never supposed to, but it's good to see the MAX doing what it was supposed to do in the first place, I guess.
0: Yeah, we're, we're getting there. Yeah, okay. One delivery at a time. I'm
2: still not excited, but good for Norwegian, I guess.
0: Well, I, I mean, I, I think it's less about being excited about the airplane than it is being interested in the, in the model to see if it works.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, all indications so far look pretty good. So we'll see how it goes. Certainly doing better than the A320neo at this point. Yeah, well, I mean, it, the problem with that's not the aircraft, is it? No, but I mean, <laughs> aircraft's not very
0: good if the engines don't work. No. Yeah. So we'll come back to that in a future episode. Mm, good idea. So more f- hate mail. More hate mail. <laughs> oh, oh, boy. Podcast at fr24.com. If you're listening on iTunes, leave a review or give us a rating so that more people can find the podcast. And that's a great way to, to help us out. Or you can, of course, email us. Find us on Twitter find us on Facebook and let us know what more you'd like to hear about. Do you have questions about aviation? Do you have comments from the past episodes? Let us know. We'd love to hear back from you. Suggestions for guests too would be greatly appreciated. Absolutely. Let us know who you want to talk to. If there's somebody in aviation that that you would love to hear from, let us know that. Podcast at fr24.com. I'm Ian Pechnik. And as always that was Jason Rubinowitz. I got the cue right this time. Yay! Episode 10. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll talk to you next time. Thanks everyone.